What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, have I told you about that dream I had the other day? What dream? So I had this dream. It was a sweaty dream? Nah. Okay. I was on this adventure. Yep. Well, I was in Germany during this dream. You're in Germany? Yeah. Were you and wearing I, Lederhausen? I was, yes. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, definitely was. And I was drinking steins of beer and I just got this overwhelming need to buy a dog. Oh, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. So I just popped on over to House Hamburg Shepherds. Oh, why wouldn't you? You'd have to. And I know that they have the best German Shepherds, but (laughs) the German Shepherds. So I bought one of their Dutchies. Oh man. The best. Shit-mouthing German Shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> and so so then in this dream, I, I finished my giant beer and mm-hmm. I took off my Lena Hosen. Yep. And I got that Dutchie mm-hmm. and I put it on a plane yep. because they can ship them anywhere. It turns out I didn't have to even be there to buy this dog in this dream. Right. And I, I flew it over to the US. Yep. Right. So when I got there, I realized I need some equipment for this dog, this Dutchie that I've got. Wait. Were you in Canada or were you in the US? Well, I was in North America or somewhere. It's not important exactly Okay. Where. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, you know what I need? Some like training gear, some collars, some leashes, harnesses. So guess where I got it from? It sounds like it's a big lead up to an old mate, Mach LaPointe. Mach LaPointe. I just yep. got under Canon Dynamics yep. and had it shipped to me. Mm. Didn't matter where I was in the US or North America, actually. Yep. I had Canon Dynamics ship it to me. It was wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, then I'm out training this Dutchie mm-hmm. in his all of his fancy equipment. The yep. Dutchie that I got from House Hamburg Shepherds mm-hmm. using the equipment I got from Canon Dynamics. Yep. And then I was training in dog park because that's how I train. Mm-hmm. And there were some people and they had some <laughs> sort of unruly behavior from their dog. Yep. And I think at this point I was in Ashland, Virginia. and uh, Fancy I, that. I thought, I said to them, they were like, oh, can you help us with this dog? I said, no, fuck you. I don't no, want to. I'm a dog part daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, fuck you, I don't want to. Yep. But I know someone who will come to your home here in Ashland, Virginia, while you're at work and will do like a little bit of a training session with your dog while you're gone. No way. You're not talking about Melanie Benway. It was Melody Benway I was Bloody talking hell. about. Kindred Canine. So I g- gave those details. Anyway, so I went on to, you know, do some cool things with this Dutchie. Mm-hmm. And then I had to come back to Australia yep. and I brought the dog. Wow. But you know what I didn't bring? What? Was any of his equipment. Oh, he left it all there. I left it all there. Okay. So I needed all new gear. And guess where I got my leashes, collars, tugs, harnesses. Dog mills. Blah, 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 blah. Buffed Central. Einswick dog quip. Einswick Buffed. Yeah. Yeah. And when I got here, I realized, oh, you know what? I had been traveling this fictional dog in my dream around mm-hmm. in the crate that he was shipped from uh, House Hamburg Shepherds. Yeah. Well, I need a custom crate now. So I had a custom crate bill by the Buffed. Wow. Einswick.com. 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 Yeah. Einswick.com. Yeah. So after your dream, when you woke up, did you wake up with a boner? You've ruined it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us all the way from Spain 
is Nando Brown and Joe Rosie Heffenden. How are you going, guys? Very well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much for having us. It's good to be here. You're welcome. I just don't know if I'm allowed to mention Clubhouse anymore because no, Pat, no, Pat no, so many. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I go to say, Pat goes, ah, oh, oh, no more, no more, stop, stop, no more Clubhouse. Oh, my God, I fucking hate it. That's <laughs> my editing. So does Pat allegedly, but he's on there all the time. Well, <laughs> there's plenty of drug addicts that don't like the drugs they take, but yet they take them nonetheless. Oh, it doesn't mean oh, I don't like it. All these flavors and you chose to be salty. <laughs> Oh dear. Okay. Hey. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us, guys. We've actually sort of all been talking quite a lot through mm. Clubhouse. And it's been kind of an interesting experience because I think Clubhouse has been interesting because you're talking to people face to or not face to face, but there's inflection and all that kind of stuff. Mm. As well as I think maybe because it's a new platform the dog trainers hadn't put themselves into categories yet. There was just like, here's a dog trainer room and it's like, oh, I'll get in there. And then you're like, oh, these aren't the people I want to fucking talk to. But <laughs> it's too late. You already are, right? Yep. And there's been some really interesting sort of conversations and, and less sort of specifics of the conversations, but more who you're having them with, which I think has been really interesting. Mm. Because you guys pointed a bunch of people at us, or you, Nando, specifically pointed a bunch of people at us like uh, six weeks or so mm. ago. So what I wanted to do is like, we'll, we'll eventually sort of get through the whole backstory of how you guys came to be, like how this conversation's coming to be. But what I'd love to know, because I've been meaning to ask you myself is like, what prompted that post? Like, what was it when you got up that morning that you thought, this is what I'm going to fucking say? <laughs> so I wasn't going out to create a war or a controversy or send crazy people your way or my own way in fairness, but it's something that Joe and I have been speaking about for a long time. Cause like where I come from, I started off using tools when I first started training. Then I had like a crossover stage where I was like a newborn Christian about it. And I was fucking, ah, you must see the light and all the rest of it. And then I realized that actually that wasn't doing me or anybody else any favors and then three years ago, we started training at a balanced club. And some of the experiences that I'd had prior to that were pretty brutal. But the experience of training at that club in particular, these dogs are coming out. They're loving training. The people there love their dogs. Like there is so much more gray area than we or is often put across in social media and I think there was just one post, like me and you'd have been speaking about it for a long time. Five years, yeah. And then there was just one post that I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm, I think it was another punishment doesn't work. Like, and I was like, fucking, by the very fucking definition, it has to work or it's not mm -hmm. fucking punishment. Mm -hmm. Like I wrote it out as a thing and I, I even checked it with my business partner and Joe as well and was like, I haven't said anything bad here, have I? Like, because I know that I'm just ranting and I, well, I need to put this out. Uh, and I showed, they were like, no, that's fine. You know, there's nothing, you're, you're not saying anything nasty. You're not calling anybody out. You're not. The funny thing about that as well is that I get 
I get censored by my business partner, Nando, all the time, all the fucking time. I'll send them something and I'll say, right, I want to say this because it's been doing my head and I'm really frustrated about it. And then Nando and Dean will come back saying, no, you can't, you can't say that. Like, it's going to alienate these people. It's going to trigger these people. And you go, so, okay, I can't say it. I can't say it. He, he writes that and I go, send it to Dean because Dean, our business partner, is uh, a lot more sort of pink and fluffy than we are yeah. and is like pretty triggered by these sorts of things. And I'm like, hmm, I don't care. You can put it out, but send it to Dean. Dean thinking, stop, yeah. thinking without a doubt, Dean will have take, like read the first sentence of that and go, nope, you're not sending that. Dean messages back. Yeah. All clear with me. Fine. <laughs> what just happened? It genuinely didn't expect it to kick off the way that it went off. Like I thought that'll go out. That'll get a bit of engagement. Like people will have their say. There'll be a few people that are a bit ranty. Bosh, done. Didn't quite work out that way. Well, I guess nobody really knows what's going to go viral and what will and what won't. Some people put something out and, you know, like they'll try and they'll try and they'll try. It's not like, you know, I'm saying that you tried and tried to make it go viral, but, you know, like you might put something out that you think, oh, yeah, that's just a bit of entertainment. And the next thing you know, it's all around the world 52 times. You know, and then you've yeah. got more DMs in your account yeah. than you bargained for. And it's just it's just crazy how it works that way. I think we're in a really interesting time in dog training at the moment. I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who are at the margins that are sort of proving less and less relevant. And right now there's a lot of people who are having conversations about successful dog training. And I think that's really the most enlightening thing to talk about. And rather than talking about the things you don't do, it's it's a lot more exciting to talk about the things you do. And something that I've been enjoying having a lot of these conversations with people in real life, online, on the podcast is trying to steer away from the specific, talk about the specific tool and rather the specific technique. Because I think, and you guys feel free to jump in, correct me if I'm wrong, but even people who would call themselves, you know, plus R or, you know, positive trainers or whatever, the real ones who can actually train dogs acknowledge that you are using all four quadrants. You are at, in one way or another, they're all, all are being used. It's just how you choose to use them and the tools that you want to use to enact them. I think as well is that when probably all of us started dog training, there were these two sort of far extreme versions of what happens now and that the, the training itself wasn't nearly as sophisticated as it is now on mm. either side and mm. so you kind of had clicker training and shaping and then you had kind of your yanking choke chains and all that malarkey and like these really um brutal use of the e-collar as well as rubbish technology from the e-collar 10-15 years ago and then I think what's happened over time is that slowly both the methodology as well as the, the mechanics and the skill sets and on top of that, the actual technology has brought both sides closer and closer, closer and closer together until what was this big, thick brick wall is now a non-existent line that you decide to draw somewhere in the sand. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, you've still got these people on the far extremes that I think frustrate all of us. And the people in the middle are actually closer together now than they are to the people on the far extremes that they used to identify with. Yeah, totally. I agree. Uh, I think as well, you can't just, people don't fit into these three three camps. Like it's not positive, balanced or in yank and crank. It's fucking each one of those is a spectrum in itself, which crosses over with the other. Like I, I listened to one of your podcasts where you said we, we say positive first, is it? Mm. Um, you owe Glenn a dollar. You said that out loud. You owe Glenn a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sent it in. You don't want to be necessarily lumped in with 
everybody that classes themselves as balanced. That happens no matter where you are on that spectrum. There are people that call themselves positive or, or, or whatever it is that you call them. But it doesn't mean that I necessarily want to be associated with that person or with somebody t- to the other side of me. I need to, it, it's, it, that label kind of trashes it. It, it. It's just fucking get out there and do stuff with your dog. And yeah. if, if, you're, if you're not hurting or scaring dogs uh, or, and the dog's fucking learning, that the training is effective, then I'm all, it, it, that, that's the important part of it for me. Yeah. It's kind of like we're neighbours sharing a boundary and we're both represented by embarrassing family members that are just, you know, like <laughs> like they're fucking gypsies that appear from nowhere and they just cause havoc and they're noisy and loud and embarrassing and they just do and say stupid things. We're both being represented by that. When we're on Clubhouse and we're talking and we're sharing those rooms together and we're getting a little bit of common decency and a bit of humanism that's appearing in the conversations, we're both acknowledging, like both camps are saying, yeah, yeah, we agree on a lot of things and we're splitting hairs with a lot of techniques that we're talking about, yet we're still represented by these banshees who love screaming and yelling and they they don't even know what they're talking about. They're just angry people being angry with each other because they're angry people. And it makes no sense what they're talking about or I don't even think they know what they're defending. They're just yelling and screaming and they just I think sometimes they just want to be heard but they don't realize the damage and the fallout that they create because they set the sides against each other because they keep drawing lines in the sand all the time and even though there are sensible people in the middle going you know don't worry about this it makes it hard when they put a fucking position that everybody thinks oh now I I need to defend this but if I do then I'm representing those idiots on my side that I really don't want to and then you've kind of got to think well how do I mitigate through this and protect myself on the fallout of it and still make it feasible for the population to understand we're not like that? And each side is volleying for that at the moment. I think the more that we're getting together, the more we're realizing, you know, we have to exclude these people and we ha- actually ha- avidly have to say, you know, these aren't the people that represent our group. They don't speak for us. They're not us. They're something else that have just mutated into some irrational fear of something. I think as well it's becoming more obvious that the people who are doing that on both sides are people who don't actually get that much success in training dogs. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Say it again for the people in the back. That is the truth. The thing is, is that we came out of a similar hashtag to your cool story, show me your dog, which is just shut up and train. And it got to a point where we would just go, right, if you're going to have, if there's going to be some sort of conflict on the internet or whatever, just shut up, get your dog out and train it because that's the only productive thing that's going to come out of that conversation. (laughs) And that's the only way that you can actually really show that what you're talking about means anything in this industry, Mm. because you can get all caught up about the quadrants. And I think the quadrants are becoming less and less relevant to training dogs that, you know, they were, they were spat out by human psychologists in the sixties for being too simplistic. And it was, you know, made in a lab and it doesn't have any relevance to to real life or, or or that certainly it can't be seen within a vacuum without looking at all the different compound variables that affect every situation. And I think that dog trainers are finally beginning to realise this. And so I think slowly we're moving away from that kind of quadrant obsession and that social learning theory obsession and moving into different, more holistic ways of looking at dogs, which will help our cause in moving away from the labels that have been built on top of 
the quadrants and social learning theory and all that. The one part of that quadrant discussion, which always has me amused and I'm always enthusiastic to listen to people try and pull themselves out of it, is negative reinforcement. The misunderstanding and the lack of acknowledgement of people actually using it, it's almost used daily without recognition of it, yet people fight so avidly against it, say, oh, no, 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 I'm not using it. I don't agree with it. Yet you can't have a dog on a lead and collar and not use negative reinforcement. Like it's actually impossible. The problem for me is that the quadrant is, it's been dumbed down so much. So you see it in little posters for dog owners. And let's be honest, dog owners don't need to fucking know about the quadrant. But it's been dumbed down for, for dog owners. And dog trainers have taken that away and said, oh, this is it. They've simplified it for themselves, but they haven't learned the nuances between the, the different sections of the quadrant. And if you take the quadrant in itself, now this is going to be really controversial, it's fucking flawed. It's flawed as a concept, right? Like, let's take positive reinforcement, right? Positive reinforcement, by definition, is to add something that increases behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the way that we take that. Add something that increases behavior, the frequency of behavior. Now, do you add an element of emotion into that, all right? So some people say add something that the dog likes, to increase behavior. Now that fucking changes the entire game. Firstly, the majority of the operant conditioning research was carried out in Skinner's boxes. Skinner's boxes were little boxes that stick a rat in, he had a presser lever, he'd get a food pellet, but he had hundreds of these boxes. He wasn't fucking watching every one. They had data readouts. So it was irrelevant to do with the emotion. In fact, Skinner himself says, like, let's not look at emotion. We can't measure emotion. So remove that. So then if we're removing the emotion part of it, then it's add a stimulus that increases the frequency of behavior. So if a dog bites me and as a consequence to him biting me, I kick him in the fucking head, right? And he bites me more because of that, that is positive reinforcement, all right? And now if you want to add the emotional context to it as well, so you add something, that increases the frequency of behavior, but you've added something that the dog likes. Now we haven't got a quadrant. You need to have fucking nine responses because you need to add something the dog likes that increases behavior or add something the dog doesn't like that increases behavior. And that's just one corner. And then you'd need nine fucking responses. The science behind it is actually is not that robust. It's robust as a data collection tool. As a metric. As a metric, but not necessarily as a, a learning theory in itself. It was never a learning theory, though. It was, always suppo- it was supposed to be a way of measuring behaviour response. Like, for me, whenever we talk about the quadrant, if I talk about it with you guys, I need you guys to define which way you define it before I can say, oh, well, this is how I feel about that particular thing. So even between dog trainers, we can't agree on, on, on something like that. Plus, then you have the, the, the situations that don't fit into it. So, for example, if you do nothing and the behaviour increases or you do nothing and the behaviour decreases. And then you've also got if you do nothing and the behaviour increases and the dog feels good about that. Or if you do nothing and the dog, yeah. the behaviour increases and the dog feels bad about <laughs> that. And so you, you, you can wind up in this ridiculous situation because then there's, there's even more boxes. Um, it's just it's it, it, it doesn't work but also like when like conrad Lorenz went and 
looked at the responses of animals in the wild. And for example, in the rat parks, when they took the rats out of the lab, out of Skinner's box, and they put them in the adventure parks of all the different stimulus, they found that their parts of their prefrontal cortex grew and were, were much bigger and that their responses were completely different in that environment to the environment that they were in the boxes. And then when they measured the wild rats, no amount of enrichment that they could give them in captivity made the brain sizes, all the responses of the animals, even comparative to the wild rats, which just in and of itself makes learning theory just that, just like this little theory, this little tiny little drop in the ocean of something that you can think about if you want to, in hindsight, measure behavior. Mm. But then in dog training, we, we base everything on that. Um, it's so, so simplistic and so frustrating to hear purists talk about that. And when you start looking at intrinsic motivation, so when you start saying, well, the dog barks because he barking itself is the reinforcer, that doesn't work in that, in that paradigm. It doesn't work in, in operant conditioning model at all. There's nothing you can do to make that, to fix that and make that work. It only works if you start looking at the dog more holistically and looking at other motivations and other, the biology and the endocrine system and the neuroscience of it. And then on top of that, looking at the environmental stuff and then what the dog was bred to do and, and all the different paradigms contradict each other. And that's fine because they're all still reality. And you just, uh, people need to start getting comfortable with that. Yeah, so just to clarify, we're not saying that open conditioning is not, not fucking worth anything. There's a lot of people that work in that operating paradigm. They use antecedent behaviour consequences there, go-to for behaviour problems or, or however. And if you're successful in that, that's fine. But it is not giving the dogs the credit that they're worth, in my opinion. Like, it's we use operating conditioning, we use clicker training, we use reward-based methods, but we also try and step out of that paradigm and say, right, how else, you know, what does the dog feel about this? And what can we do to change this situation, but from a different perspective? It's about understanding the different lenses Mm. and applying the different lenses to every situation and going, actually, in this situation, to be effective as possible and as, as clear to the dog as possible with, like, clarity and efficacy being probably the two real major pillars of success as far as a training situation is concerned, in my opinion, what lens is going to be best to look through? Mm. Am I best thinking about dopamine and how that works? Or am I best thinking about the dog's physical ability to do something? Or am I best thinking about what he's been bred to do and therefore what he's motivated to do in that situation? Mm. Which one of these lenses is going to be best? Yeah. It requires that nuanced thought and it's not as simple as just looking at like, here's the diagram that's been dumbed down. I a hundred percent agree with you. And, and, I think a big part of it that's relevant to dog training as well is we kind of forget that, you know, dogs are our captives and they live in the environment with which we give them. Mm. And so, you know, reinforcers and punishment are not just relevant in the moment, but they're relevant from where you came. And one of the, you know, one of the things I sort of, I I know I've mentioned it on the show a few times, but it's a big part of the seminar when I teach, when I, I talk about this kind of stuff is, you know, I can paint a scenario for you where when I was waterboarded, it's straight positive reinforcement. It was a, it was the best. I, like it was one of the greatest things I can imagine because of the alternatives. Like the alternative is to get back in the box, blindfolded, listening to Snappy Dutch Clan and Crocodile, right? Like, and it was, 
in the 58 hours, like it was on a resistance to inter- interrogation course that I did. So of the 58 hours that you're captured, only uh, you get four interrogations of 40 minutes. And so no matter what they do to you during that time, you fucking love it because the alternative is total isolation. So there's at one point when they were drowning me, I was like, this is the best. Like, because <laughs> the alternate is to go back in that box. Right. And I, I like, if, if you were to now, especially since I live at Maslow six, if you were to say, Hey, we're going to start waterboarding you, I'll be like, Oh no, that's the worst thing in the world. I'll do anything to avoid that. I'll give you the secret codes and whatever you want. I'll fucking give it up. <laughs> but in that moment, I was like, bring it on. Waterboarding's fantastic. I was a tougher person uh, and the alternative was way worse for me. That isolation was much worse thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm hundred percent on board with you guys. It's interesting to hear you talk because I think, you know, that's a good segue into some background stuff because you guys have pretty different backgrounds. So can we start, Joe Rosie, please tell us, you've just exposed yourself as a mad science nerd. How did that come, how did that come to be? Let us know, like, how is it that we're having this conversation and that you are able to pluck and, you know, reference so much scientific data? The end part of your question, I can't answer. I've got no idea why my brain retains certain bits of information. It just does. Uh, Maybe because I love it, probably. I grew up with academics. My dad had a PhD in philosophy and my mum had a master's in education and they both were lecturers at university. So I was very much brought up with dinnertime conversations being to, oh, look at this science paper and let's pick it apart and look at the pros and cons. So that was ingrained from a very young age. And there was quite a lot of academic pressure to go to university. Uh, but my mum gave me some good advice, which was to just keep getting qualified and more experienced with the things that you find interesting. Um, and that's followed me around with probably up there with the best advice I was ever given. Because you can you can only, like looking back, it looks like I've had this really linear path into doing what I do now. But actually, at the time, I had no idea. And so I went to university and I did uh, human psychology as my degree level and really enjoyed it but as soon as I came into my kind of last year I realized that having grown up in a farming community and with dogs and horses my passion was very much in animals and understanding animals was more felt more relevant and I felt like I was better at it than understanding humans and more interested in it so then when I came out of that I thought oh maybe I'll use my psychology degree and start Uh, But I I specialised in zoology in my last year. So I thought, well, maybe I'll I'll start using that um, as a platform and go into writing about it. So I then got a a journalism qualification and got a job at a rescue centre, writing the sort of, this is what you do when you get your dog home uh, and so on and so forth leaflets. And that took me into going into the behaviour clinic there. So I went to the behaviour clinic and I, I can remember like it was yesterday, the first time I walked in there. And I walked in and I met um, Ryan and Claire, who were the two main behaviorists for the rescue center. It was a rescue center that had 16 different centers across the country. So it's quite a large one. And I walked in there. I didn't really know that the that, that job existed as a, as a proper job. And I walked in and my brain just lit up. And I was like, why didn't someone tell me about this? This is what I sh- this is where I belong. This is this. So I spent every second of every day making up meetings so that I could spend as much time in there as I possibly could. And they, after me beating them down relentlessly, kind of agreed that they'd mentor me. And then I decided to get my postgrad qualifications in animal behavior whilst I was still, you know, stooging dogs at the end of the lead and working with dogs in kennels. 
to get up as much experience as I could. But I fell in love with science, I think. Or I, no, that's not true. I fell in love with critiquing science and mm. being sciences, trying to out science science was always kind of my goal. Um, I wanted to use the science, what science is, which is just a method of inquiry. And I wanted to use that on science because that's what I felt was the just thing to do. And so I would read through paper after paper after paper, inquiring to try and get closer and closer to the truth. Um, and I found that particularly in animal behaviour, so much of the science I was reading was completely contra contrary to the dogs that I was seeing. And so I knew that there had to be an element that it was wrong. And so I'd continue to just keep picking away and picking away. And I think, um, and, and, and fast forward, I've, then I was, I was very lucky in my career and I did a bunch of stuff. Like I was able to, I became an expert witness. So I started working with dogs that got in trouble with the law to kind of have a look at what those situations were like. And I got really into uh, human aggression particularly, and also really into pit bulls and typing pit bulls because it kind of amalgamated science and law and dog behavior which I really enjoyed for a while and then I wrote a book and then I I was lucky enough to get chosen to present a tv show with Nando um and then we did that together which is how we kind of properly met but I think I never lost that deep deep desire to be not to be science-based but to be evidence-based mm. and so I think with that comes a natural need to read through all this, all these papers all the time and keep on top of what, what science is saying and a natural questioning of that and a critique of that. I can't read a science paper without going, but hold on, that's stupid. And why have they done that? And they haven't understood that. And so I think, I think that's maybe why I remember them because I remember how I critique them so much. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's great. And can you then tell us, because I know you consume and digest pretty much everything that happens in the dog space that's that's being published scientifically. What do you think the percentage is of papers that you read where you go like, oh yeah, that's a good paper. There's no bias in this. What do you reckon the percentage of that would be? And and, and can you give us the most outrageous example that you've encountered recently? Oh, that's going to be really controversial. Okay, okay. I think we crossed that line already. <laughs> uh, I, I, I can do that. I can do that for you. I've got. I've got to keep a complete objective hat on that. And and the thing is, is that as someone who loves the inquiry of science, I find it really important to work away from my bias. So I, I have to. I lay my cards on the table there, and that I will try to read papers that I feel like I'm going to disagree with, with the biggest critical spectacles on, because it's very easy to critique papers that you don't want to agree with. And it's very hard to critique papers that you do want to agree with. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to caveat everything I say with that. But um, I can't remember, your, what was your first question? What percentage do you think of oh. the papers you read are you know, well done where you go like, oh, they're not just trying to prove their own point here. They're really trying to find something out. Mm, these days, in the last two years, maybe five to ten percent. Um, I think that that science, in and of itself, has become a con commodity in the in the dog world. Scientists have become celebrities, and so that's put in a very different. You can see the change that that's. You can see how that's affected the way science is reported, and therefore the way papers are constructed in order to try to get headlines and to mm -hmm. try to get those kinds of things. Um, which is a real a huge frustration to me. There are still some. There are still some. I think one of the biggest problems with that percentage of papers that are 
that aren't bad science papers is the lack of understanding of dogs because the the problem is is that even within that 10 to 20 percent of papers where the the methodology is structured in a way that is going to make it fairly robust and fairly valid and fairly reliable a lot of those studies aren't so good that are not so valid because the people don't understand things like particularly olfaction. Olfaction is the biggest one that drives me mad most because they, they carry out these tests with absolutely no respect for the, the perception the dog has of the world in terms of through its sense of smell. So, you know, when you're looking at a test whereby they've put two bowls out and one always has treats in them and they change it to the other one, you just think this is ridiculous. Like mm-hmm. this is, this is, this is a joke. Um, and then when you look at things like the, the hat handler effects on things like scent work, you realize that dogs are very likely can smell our knowledge of where those things are. So they can very likely smell the chemical changes of the handlers when the handler knows what the mm-hmm. outcome of the test is going to be, which means that any study that isn't double blind, where the, where the person carrying out the study does know what the results of that test are going to be is also kind of invalid mm-hmm. uh, because they haven't really understood and, and, and honored the dog's sensible faction. So it's a very difficult question to, to answer, but I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who are doing it for the right reasons and, and, and it's not, they're not carrying out studies in order to provide the press or the government with particular responses. But of those, there's an even smaller percentage of those scientists that have any experience handling dogs. Yeah. Let's explore that for a moment because I think that's something that does sort of irk me quite a bit is that, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I fucking have come a long way. Like when you look at, you know, when it, that in Facebook does that embarrassing thing of showing you a clip of yourself from 11 years ago and it's like, here's 11 years ago. And you're like, oh, I got to delete that. Uh, what am I doing? Like, this is ridiculous. I can't let anyone else see that because of who I am now versus that me 11 years ago that really didn't have the skill set, didn't have the finesse, didn't have all that. And what I don't, often see and, and and it kind of annoys me because I, I read a fair few papers but you know probably nowhere near as, as much as you is that they seldom list the trainer they seldom will say like this named person and if I were to read that and it said Joe Rosie Heffernan was the trainer or Nando Brown's the trainer I go all right well now this has a different level of authority because that's a real dog trainer who has evidence that they can train a dog you know regardless of method regardless of whatever they're trying to teach here they are a dog person and I, I can go back and I can go like, okay, well, imagine I'd never heard of you. I can find you and I can look at your body of work and go, oh yeah, this person knows how to train dogs. I can assume that there was some, you know, actual dog trainer skill in this, but more often than not, they don't list the person or when they do, it's just one of the undergrads, right? Who is just a person that's like, oh, okay. Positive reinforcement is click, give the dog food. And it's like, no, 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 right? Like just the way you deliver the food, even that one piece of kibble, like I can say, click, give a piece of kibble, right? The way that I can do that can radically change everything, whether I just click and open my hand and here it is versus do I slide away, bring some game, throw a turn, make you chase it over there. That's going to have a radical difference. And when they are including different trainers, but not telling us who they are. So my control group is trained by Nando and my uh, test subjects are trained by Joe Rosie. Now that's fucking irrelevant as well, because you two are not going to be able to deliver the reinforces the same way. Things are going to be different the studies that really do go into that like the my my favorite study and it shows my bias though is 
the effects of the e-collar, the prong collar and the quitting signal, right? By Esther Schalk. And this trainer is Hans Ebers, her husband, right? And I know him. He's a fucking top end dog trainer, right? And so we can remove, and it was another guy as well, but a colleague of his. So we can remove the handler error. Like we can go, okay, no, sweet. Like the, the actual dog training component of this, I mean, everything about that study is just German to the T, right? <laughs> like everything about that study. But we know, oh, okay, the handling was done good. So now the data is like, we can look at the data and the way that they tested it and I can remove the handler as a, as a problem within that. Yeah, as a compound variable, as something that's going to affect how standardized mm. and operationalized the study is. I agree. The trouble is then though, because I've, I've been down that road and I've thought about it because I, I, we often will, on, if we're on a long journey, we'll come up with an idea and we'll say, how would we test it? Um, the problem is, is that you've got to look at the reasons that you're testing it. If you're just testing it for the efficacy of the tool at its best, then that's fine. But then if you're trying to test something, you know, to, the study that you're referencing wouldn't give us very much data for that say, those same methods and those same tools being given to the vast majority of dog trainers. So are you better off getting an average medium dog trainer into your studies? Because mm. actually they're going to be, it's going to be, you're going to be more likely to generalize that data across to a larger section of the population than if you do get a top dog trainer. But then that that depends on your goal for that study. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's an interesting point. But absolutely, I think that would then change you know, you could do the same study three times with a very high-end trainer and a mediocre trainer and some like random Jono who's like, hey, here's the five-minute heads up on how it works, right? And then and and witness the results and and that would be some some good data to look at and then compare all three together. But no one's doing that. No. And the other thing that frustrates me about the tests like that is that there's no reason in this day and age that you can't have video data. Yes. Like what, where are the videos of these tests? Yeah. And when they exist, you look at them and you go, that's ludicrous. Yeah. That is absolutely cracker. Like wh why are you doing Like that's mental. Like, and, and sometimes I'll read a study that does have a video and you read the description of it and you, you picture it in your head as being this one thing. And then you see it in, in the video and you're like, that's not what I was imagining. And that's stupid. Like that's not testing what you think it's testing. So are you kind of suggesting that in a day and age where we've got all these smartphones, like every single person almost in the world has one, and yet we still haven't been able to find the Loch Ness Monster and the Sasquatch? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're talking about research and, and scientific acknowledgement. What about the layering of emotion? Because we touched on that earlier on before when you were talking, Nando. Do you believe that we have corrupted data effectively through emotions? My point was that Skinner didn't believe that you could measure emotion. So therefore to remove that component gave him a much clearer picture of a specific set of data. But I think we're not doing justice to the dog to not include emotion. Mm. So there is, especially nowadays with the, the science where they're using MRI machines to carry out scans on dogs that are awake that kind of thing. Although some of that needs a bit of work as well. Like th that's progressed forward a lot. And like, when certainly when I first started dog training, we weren't allowed to talk about emotions because we were anthropomorphizing dogs. We were treating them like humans. And, and nowadays that's becoming less and less of a dirty word because as long as we acknowledge a dog is a dog, then 
it's okay to understand that they have the same biological makeup in the brain uh, that we do. Now, the different components might measure differently and they obviously have a larger olfactory bulb than we do. And, and there's different, they're different. And the, f- the fucking brain is the size of a lemon, like in comparison to mine, which is like a fucking watermelon. As long as we can, as long as we can acknowledge those differences and don't take it too far. Um, I'm not talking about people treating dogs like dogs. There is a middle ground where, Actually, we can start studying dogs as sentient beings as opposed to rats in a Skinner's box. In in terms of human emotion corrupting science, 100%. That's that's, that's where my question was leading. Yeah, I thought that's where you were leading. Mm. Let let me just put a pin in that really quickly because I do, we definitely want to cover that. I want to cover the human fucking up science as well as I I definitely want you to throw the grenade of the worst science you've read recently. But I was hoping to dodge that. What I was hoping to just sort of touch on, because you guys brought it up and it's something I've been meditating on quite a lot recently is, you know, there was a time in Skinner's time where we couldn't measure emotion. There was no way to do it. And so it was easier just to take it off the table. It was the black box, I think he called it, right? Like what happens in the box? We don't know. And so now we can, there is effective ways of measuring emotions in the very basics. And so we, it turns out a lot of the things that we said, oh, when people said my dog loves me, we'd say, oh, you're anthropomorphizing. I, could, I don't think I've ever said that word correctly in my life. And, <laughs> and, and now we go, well, no, like there's people who are now going, fuck you, my dog does love me and here's the evidence, right? I'm curious to hear from you guys because I, I would say it's probably something you have thought about. And if not, you know, tell me to fuck off, but- where do you think the line in the sand is on that with dogs? Because we've proven dogs can love. And one of the things that Jordan Peterson once said in an interview, uh, it was the GQ interview, if anyone wants to look it up, was that in most cases, it turns out that you're not anthropomorphizing your dog, right? In most cases, they are actually feeling it. Can you rattle off some emotions that you think dogs can't feel? Like for me, I draw a line in the sand at, not even regret, but embarrassment. Like, you know, some people would hear say like my dog's embarrassed. And I think that to be embarrassed requires a level of acknowledgement of the self that I don't know that a dog can have. Right. So I don't know that a dog could be embarrassed. And and I'd love to be wrong because certainly we see behaviors that I could say that looks like embarrassment when I see a dog act a particular way. But to separate that from just appeasement would be very, very difficult, right? And I think that sometimes dogs do things and you imagine a dog that falls over and hurts himself and he is sort of injured and he's kind of melancholy from that. And then we reinforce that by, you know, we coddle the dog, we, we check he's okay, you know, all those kinds of things. And so next time he's injured, he displays like, here's the look that I got last time that you helped me through this. And we'd be easy to look at that and go, oh, he's embarrassed because he knows he did something stupid. And I use that as a very specific example because my dog does dumb shit like that all the time and gives me funny looks and people go, oh, he's so embarrassed. And I'm like, I don't know that. I'm not sure that he's embarrassed. I think that he's a knucklehead and he likes what I give him when he looks at me like that. But I'm really curious, where's that line in the sand for you guys? If you've thought about it or if it's too deep a question, we can get to the terrible sign. We we haven't spoken about embarrassment specifically. But we talk about this sort of thing all All the time. time. Yeah. And we look at the the data behind it and the different evidence for it and stuff like that. Um, When I first started, I remember going to my first um, APBC, which is like an organisation in the UK, to my first 
conference of theirs. And I remember pretty much the theme being anthropomorphism. And it bit like the whole thing being about, you know, we can't project our emotions onto the dog and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I remember at the time it feeling wrong and me being like stupid because look at it. It clearly feels some of these things. Um, and so it's always been a, a massive source of fascination for me, um, particularly because the architecture is the brain is such that all these things are compl- as possible in the dog as they are in us. Mm. I think that the, the, the overarching answer for me, and I'm sure you'll be different because we don't always agree on these things, Quite commonly done. is that the perception of the world is so different that we haven't got a hold on that world enough to be able to test most the majority of it. I mean, like there are so many examples of tests that we that we think prove that dogs don't do something and then we retest them a different way and we find out that they do because we haven't considered or faction or we haven't considered mm-hmm. the way that the dogs see differently through the different shapes of the corneas in their eyes and or the colours are different, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I don't think we've I don't think we've mastered anywhere near what we need to master in order to test for these things. But in terms of the mounting evidence, I see no reason that dogs can't feel the same complex types of emotion that we feel. I I think that we we do anthropomorphize quite a lot in terms of putting human ideals, morals, ideas, and our our private experience of emotions on the dogs. So like, for example, uh, my dog might fall off the sofa and I might think, oh, look at that, look, he's definitely embarrassed. But actually for a dog, that isn't a big deal, but something else that I won't have even noticed will be a big deal. And he feels embarrassment for that. I think he can feel embarrassment. I think they probably do feel embarrassment, but unlikely for the same things that we feel embarrassment for, or they have a dog version of it. And the same would definitely go for guilt and jealousy. Yeah. And resentment too. Jealousy, I'm with you 100%. I heard someone once say, no, dogs definitely can't feel jealous. They just get angry, which they can feel, over the loss of rights to access of something. And I was like, that's the best definition of jealousy I've ever heard. Exactly. So I'm actually currently studying jealousy. So I've been looking at the research literally even this last week for jealousy in dogs. And there is some research but most of it is about inequity aversion, which is slightly different because it's jealousy is the feeling of anger or upset that somebody has got something that I haven't got. Um, but inequity aversion is about a task. So you might have seen the whole capuchin monkeys. Yeah, with the in cucumber. The and, case, yeah. One gets paid. Yeah, the other one gets a grave and video. then he gets pissed. It's fucking brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and he, he takes it out and throws it at the researcher like, are you taking the piss out of me or what? Yeah. And when you look at the studies that have been replicated with dogs, they've done it with dogs and wolves and they've done it with dogs as well. It isn't the same. Like you can't say that dog is pissed uh, that he's got that reward. They say, if we stop rewarding it, then the dog stops offering the behavior. Therefore it shows inequity aversion. I go, no, you just put that fucking behavior under extinction. Mm. Like (laughs) you've stopped fucking rewarding it. So you stop paying the dog's gone. Fuck this. Mm. I'm done. That doesn't necessarily mean that they don't feel it, but that study isn't set up for research on dogs. It worked brilliantly on capuchin monkeys, and it's been replicated in gorillas and various different animals. Yeah, primates, but also in uh, fish and uh, and some birds. But in dogs, it just, the evidence isn't anywhere near as strong. Now, I think that with a lot of this, it's the same as guilt. Some of those studies, they say we put a biscuit down 
the owner leaves the room with the dog in the room, told the dog not to eat it. The researcher removes the biscuit. And when the owner comes back in, the dog shows signs of appeasement. Therefore, it's not guilt. It's signs of appeasement. That doesn't prove that the dog doesn't show, doesn't feel guilt. It just shows that it fucking shows appeasement in that situation. Yeah. So I think some of the science isn't necessarily set up yet to yeah. prove the point that we need. Sorry, that's going to come across the mic. <laughs> well, I just want to point out that that's a dog shaking its lips around. That wasn't anything weird happening. Not, on not Nando flapping his gums. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with yeah. you, mate, to keep us on track. I agree with 100%, and I think that I think it's going to come out that anthropomorphizing a dog is less about putting emotions onto them. I think that they can feel a lot more emotions than we give them credit for. It's the anthropomorphizing is going to be attributing bad reasons to those emotions. The desire like, of them. Yeah. Like, mm. because you would feel that way, it doesn't mean that would also make the dog feel that way. And that's what I see, like, where people really cause problems for their dogs is they misinterpret why their dog is depressed. And it's like, hey, you know, like, clearly your dog is down, he's depressed, but maybe it's because you don't fuck and walk him or maybe it's because you got a working dog and you've never let him work like those are the reasons rather than like his chakras are out of alignment you know <laughs> i think also it's um it's really easy to forget how how much of a messed up species our artificial domestic dogs are like as a collection of animals they are so fucked up because like because of the way that we bred them like everything we've taken them completely out of every form of natural selection natural behavior natural environment we've taken what is really a pair bonding animal and we've taken away their ability to select a mate which they would do. We've taken away the dad's ability to stay with the puppies and play with the puppies and guard the puppies, which changes the whole natural selection in terms of kin selection, cooperative behavior, and the way that a female would choose a male, you know, on what merit. Mm -hmm. And instead we've, we've selected them based on the idea of the biggest, strongest male in most cases, which is the opposite of what they would select themselves as far as studies show in feral and, and community dogs. And then we've also put them in this completely artificial environment, particularly socially, where we're kind of messing around with their hierarchies and we're stopping, like, preventing different social things from happening. And we're putting dogs together that would never be together and in situations they'd never be. And so we've, we've played God massively with their evolution of this small collection of dogs that live with us as companions. And so I think as a result of that, that like they're not even true to their own species behavior because we've we've bred them into something that is dependent and and cooperative to us mm -hmm. in a way that no other species in a world is yeah and so so it's it's very very difficult to glean how that really mixed and artificial heritage affects the, the reasons that they feel things. Mm, I think yeah. that dogs are probably fairly confused or feel things or, or fairly conflicted, certainly, in terms of how they feel because they've got what is what has formerly been natural and is natural for the vast majority of their species on one hand, and then they've got how they were bred and how they've been raised for the past many, many generations on the other hand. Yeah. And I don't think those two things connect in any way. So I 
think it's really, really hard for us to get any grasp on what that reality looks like. Yeah, I agree. And and that comes down to that observation piece, right? Like, so we have a lot of scientific data that was done on other species, but then you can't just hold as bowl as assume it's going to cross over. And it's interesting, Nando, you used that uh, capuchin monkey one on an inequality because that's something I've thought about a lot because I regularly do obedience with my dog while other dogs are doing bite work. And like my dog's just fine with it. He like he can take the ball from me for having sat while the dog next to him get told to sat and he gets to bite. And so that breaks the mold, right? Like that doesn't fit within what that study told us because there's conditioning phase and blah, 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 all the training that went into that dog. But also it negates the fact that animals and our dogs are such highly social species. And I think most of those um, capuchin monkeys were kept together. And so therefore they knew each other. And I think that has massive, massive difference. Mm. You know, if I was to sit down the spaniel and one of our and, and our malinois next to each other now and give one of them food i think there would be a massive amount of jealousy but if i was to get a foreign dog with a foreign handler to come in here that the dog didn't know i don't think she'd give a toss yeah i just want to touch on that a little bit more because you know it's something that i've been thinking about and especially since this conversation stirred it up a little bit when we start talking about the concepts of anthropomorphism and so forth where i think about this or where i've read research into it what happens beyond the presentation of the stimuli? Like what, what about the residual emotion? Like humans can feel and experience jealousy beyond the presentation of the stimulus. So we can go through our lives all through the day feeling jealous about something that happened yesterday. What about a dog? That's where my interest lies. How do we measure that? How do we understand that? And that's where I think we become anthropomorphic in the presentation of a dog because, you know, it's usually – and the presentation of stimuli, that's where we generally see the behavior which replicates what we know as jealousy. But beyond that, you don't see it anymore. Like you don't see the residual effect. Whereas I know sometimes when I can see the look on a human's face that they're feeling an emotion that happened from a long time ago. Like you can see disdain or regret or jealousy or anger or something like that. And you can see the residual compound of that stretching throughout time. Like it's very linear, even though it happened several days ago, where I don't see that with dogs. But you put it, you produce a stimuli... You do in some ways, like if a dog's fearful yeah. of something. Fearful, right? yes. Yeah. Yes, you do in things like that. Like that's very measurable. Mm. But what about, so, you know, like when we're talking about jealousy, how do you, how do you measure that? Don't know. So exactly. Is, uh, as I say, with the, with the jealousy thing, because I've been looking at it recently, mm. there's an argument to suggest it's a primordial emotion. So it comes from the same part of the brain as fear, as in it's quite an old emotion mm. because uh, it's what was it something to do with competition the fomo fear but of missing there's, out there's some evidence to say that it could be quite an quite an ancient emotion quite an ancient so i'm fucking right but an old emotion that doesn't take complex cognitive ability to have it's more of a simple emotion than for instance empathy empathy thank you <laughs> But coming back to what you were saying, I would I would beg to differ. And again, it comes back to looking at who dogs are as a as a species. And when we look at them as a primarily a social species and a really cooperative social species. And I would say that you do see evidence of dogs holding on to emotions for longer frigs and even jealousy, I would say, because I've definitely had situations where particularly one of our dogs will hold a grudge. And we'll hold a grudge on another dog for days. And, and you've had experiences with Rodney and Zeus yeah. where dogs have held grudges for weeks and then waited for that opportunity 
to take it out on the other dog. And, and you can see it brewing and, and two but, of our bitches sometimes, that fizz will sometimes hold a grudge against one of a, one of the dogs going out for and doing something without her, like going for a walk or going for training. Well, we don't know that's why, but, but there's but it, definitely the, but But the flip side to that is... Like when you have, like for me, people, like there's that whole argument where if you lose a dog, do you let your other dogs go and see the body mm. so that they can process that the dog's dead? Like I've tried that and it's almost like they don't give a fuck. Mm. Like they, they go over and they go, oh yeah, that's dead. There's no kind of nothing while we're in a fucking blubbering mess on the floor. Mm. Like they're, they're like, what shit happens? Moving on. So they Or they eat them. Or yeah, or they eat them. There's definitely a difference there between humans. Um, I'm not suggesting that dogs and humans are the same. I just don't want to underestimate their capabilities. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody does. I think that most people who have been involved in this field for a long period of time understand that there's far more there than what we comprehend. And, mm. you know, I, I believe it was Chad Macken who said it, and I reinforce this statement, is that we're only up to date as far as science has allowed us to be. So as Pat and I were talking about this not so long ago about into the future where we can get biometric readouts and really start to understand and delve into where a dog is feeling and make that more measurable and tangible. I think one day in the future that will definitely exist. We will be able to get a far better readout, but right now we're limited on fMRI technology and science studying whatever they choose to investigate and put money into, they spend time studying that. But then you've alerted us to the point which we accept as well and understand is that this is not a perfect environment. This sometimes is an environment which is convenient to the scientists and to the people who are, who are measuring data. So the problem is, is that we've got some evidence, but it, there's still a lot of limitations around that. And I think people are really different and therefore individual dogs would be really different. So, you know, you were talking just then, Nando, about jealousy being a, you know, like a, a base emotion. Mm. And then, Joe Rosa, you used the example of like a more complex emotion uh, that would be more difficult to sort of come to being empathy. And that could be really different between people. Like I find myself now, I'm quite capable of empathy where, you know, maybe five, six, seven years ago, I was completely without it. Like I, I, I didn't really even understand what that was. I could understand sympathy. Like I could see somebody else's situation and go, I understand that you are upset because of your situation, but I couldn't feel their upsetness. Whereas my dog is an empath. Like, you know, if someone comes over to my house and you've been having a bad day, she will take that from you. She will sit with you and she will have that same emotion with you. And that's empathy. Whereas for me, it's taken like literally years because I read a book that said it makes you a better parent, the more empathetic you can be. And I was like, oh, I don't have any of that. So I've got to fucking develop it. <laughs> and like for me in order, and I'm pretty good at it now, but I have to go through some complex shit to be empathetic with someone. Like when someone is upset about something that I can't, like I can't share that with you. I have to create an entire fictional reality for myself to travel down where I can get that upset. And it's usually got to be, the situation has to be so ridiculous. And this might be that, you know, somebody is you know really different from me and they're upset over fucking Nando posting that, I'm not a bad person, right? And they lose their mind over that, right? And they're they're really upset about it and, you know, in my DMs over it. And in order to have empathy for that person, I have to create a fiction so outrageous 
that I can feel the same emotion that they're feeling. And I am a totally, I'm able to sympathy straight away. Boom. I can sympathize with you. You've misunderstood. Here's the situation. Now you're upset. But to feel empathy for them, I have to create this nonsense reality. And it can take me minutes sometimes to come up with this bullshit story that can put me into their shoes like and, and understand it and really truly understand it from their perspective and then go like, oh, I now feel what you feel. It's a different reason, but I can feel what you feel and now I have empathy I have empathy with you. I understand I can I can work this with you. But like I say, my dog does that in a fucking instant with people, right? One of my dogs. My other dog doesn't give a shit how you feel, right? Like if you come into my house kind of low and defeated and you're like that my dog will rape you. Like that's his go-to, right? <laughs> like he will just jump on you and start trying to mount you and, and hump you. And he'll be like, you're weak. I'm going to take advantage of this. <laughs> Whereas my other dog will lay in your lap and be like, oh no, like I'm going to help you through this. I will feel it with you. So I think it can be a really individual thing. And I think the emotions that dogs will feel is going to be really individual in that I'm sure that like with your history and Endo, which we haven't even touched on here, but me and you'd have a, a wonderful time together. We go to the pub and we'd talk bullshit and we'd have a, me and you would be really different people with each other than you, when I would be, if me and you, Joe Rosie went out, you know, like, because we don't have a shared, uh, even though we've never met Nando, we have a, a shared history and that we're both in the army. Right. And so then like, we don't have that together. So we would be different versions of each other and the emotions that we would guard versus let come out would be really different. And I think that I wouldn't get naked in a pub and I wouldn't, <laughs> put makeup on and wear a dress yeah, and, I know. and I would turn up like that right? and I'd be disappointed if Nando didn't either but so that's the thing like I think that you're sometimes we all wear the mask and play the character that's appropriate to the scene and how we could ever test that in a dog is beyond me like there's good there's going to be a way at some point but right now like especially when you're in a lab scenario that dog is going to be showing like hey I miss my people right rather than this is the emotion but I feel and that's before we get into something that's very unfashionable and it's going to be very unfashionable for me to say it, but I've got to say it. And that's gender differences. Like we mm -hmm. underrate gender differences in dogs. And actually, you know, when it comes to the physiology, when it comes to the psychology, when it comes to the endocrine system, the, the differences between male and female are massive, are, apps, are huge in terms of social abilities, in terms of roles, in terms of predispositions towards particular behavior, towards particular emotions in the same situations, towards the way we think feel emotion like the same emotion we feel very differently like men are much more likely to feel jealousy than women and all this kind of stuff and there's not been enough that we we don't dwell on that enough when we look at canine science and and that they have exactly the same differences so male and female dogs are likely to to test very very differently and that's before we think about, you know, there's there's lots of things, again, it's, it's not a very fashionable opinion, but there's lots of things and there's lots of reasons for it. But there's also things to say that different people from different parts of the world test differently based on not just how they were raised, but also how they were line bred, if you like. Mm -hmm. And also that prepared learning because you're in different environments like temperature, predators, all that kind of stuff. So you've also got that. And on top of that, you've got the fact that there's there's more variation in the breeds of dogs than any other species in the whole world. So that the breeds are all going to behave very, very differently. So it, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard to get any kind of generalized information from science when it comes to dogs in, in many ways. Mm. 
So we've just how that's normally dealt with is in sample size, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, you, you, but, there's two two different ways of doing it. Either you use the same breed and the same, and you match pair everything. Yeah. Or you go and you you, you, you just get a, a cross section of everything. The problem is, is what I was going to say is that in a lot of the canine science, the sample size is is tiny. Mind blowing. Like, it's more like six. Yes, five mm. dogs. You'd be like, that's, you can't. That's not right. I remember yeah. when I first told you that because I yeah. remember saying oh, to you, me saying to you, "Well, we should just we'll do we'll do our own study at home and we'll see what the effects are." And you're like, "Yeah, but it's it's ridiculous because we've only got I think we had nine dogs at the time. We've only got nine dogs." And I was like, "Yeah, that's a pretty good sample size." You were like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "No, as far as science is concerned, that's that's fine. Just use our dogs." So let's bring that back around then to what Glenn was talking about: is that influence of emotion into the scientists, and you know sometimes that we're proving a point, and that might feed directly into you know something that you've read recently that you just thought this is nonsense. I think you know it does. I think this is a good question. Yes, I'm happy. I, I can talk about that. So there is a study that I really don't like quite publicly for a lot of reasons, which is a study that came out. And, and when I read this study, it was it was about shot collars. And when I read it, I read it with the usual bias that I read it with, which is that I can see what I can see what I'm expecting this to say. And therefore, I need to look at it particularly critically. And I could talk about my my journey with how I feel about shop collars for about six days. So I won't bore you with all that because that's been a roller coaster of competing against myself and really having to come to terms with accepting things that I didn't want to believe were true um, a lot. But this particular study is a study where they're they're testing for predation problems. There's problems with how they do that already because one sample has worse predation problems and breeds that are more akin to higher drive predation problems than the other sample. But they have two samples of dogs with predation problems. They have an e-collar trainer in one group and a non-e-collar trainer in the other group. And effectively they go through, they test the dogs once over two days and then they test them again over two days in a period of time later. And the, the conclusion of the study that the scientists made was that the experiment gave them enough data when it was backed up with things that they've read before to suggest that they should that the government should ban e-collars and that the welfare of dogs was compromised with the e-collar when you read the results that's not what the results say that there's marginal differences really between the two groups. And they do things like they test cortisol. And I hate it when they test cortisol because effectively cortisol is affected by things like movement of the dog. Mm -hmm. And I would say having watched both types of trainer train the same type of thing, um, that the dogs in the e-collar group were likely to move significantly more than the way that the other group would have trained that Mm -hmm. and did train that. And, and, And also by things like temperature and very unfairly the the equal group was tested in such poor weather conditions in the rain. And it was so bad that they had to then move it and do it in a different location for the second test. Whereas the other group was tested uh, in indoors, only indoors and was trained throughout only indoors. Mm-hmm. And I could go on and on and on about the change, the differences. In addition to that, there were male handlers on the e-collar as, as e-collar trainers. And there were female handlers in the, the other group, which has shown again and again and again affects the way that the dogs will react. And the only thing it tested really was the cortisol level and the stress signals, which 
A, isn't a representation of welfare. B, doesn't take into the consideration the bigger ethical challenges such as the animal's welfare after the training and when they're with the owner and the rest of the, lo- the life of that animal. And because of the technology of the remote trainers, when someone is watching that, you cannot say that the person watching and coding for those dogs' emotions wasn't aware of which group the dogs were in because the trainer's standing there with a bloody remote in their hand. Mm -hmm. And unless the other group had the same collar on and a remote in their hand, it's going to be very, very, very visible which dogs are on which group. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel when I read where the scientists came from, the fact that it was government funded, the fact that the government were very clear that they were looking to present an argument against the e-collar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that it is just a, a terrible, terrible example of, of the scientific method. It doesn't show anything other than perhaps if you use anything that tells any animal that you don't want them to do something that that doesn't as feel as good for that animal as if you tell an animal continuously continuously that you do want them to do something and reward them for doing that mm-hmm. that's all it really tells you and that's also one of my frustrations with the way that they often do test the e-collars is that they test them in terms of the welfare of the animal in that moment and if I send my child to school if I send Santino who's a four-year-old son if I send him to school right he would he would definitely show more stress signals when he's in the classroom being taught because he has to be there and he's sitting on a chair and they're saying to him you've got to use this pencil and write this stuff and you need to learn this Spanish word and all this And that in and of itself is quite stressful. And if I take him out of that environment and I just have him at home with me and I let him do whatever he wants and he can play on his Nintendo and he can mess about with the dogs and and the rabbits and whatnot. If I'm just going to measure welfare without measuring what he's learnt and how he's progressed, then of course he's going to be happier at home. Mm -hmm. So if Tina goes to school and he goes and has to learn stuff in a classroom of course if i'm going to test stress signals and stuff there's going to be significantly more of them in the classroom setup learning itself is stressful like that's of course it is Mm. um whereas if he's allowed to do whatever he wants he's not going to show those stress signals but without learning the without testing the learning objectives without testing how much he's learned and the efficacy of those lessons and how those lessons have affected his life i don't think the welfare in and of itself Unless the welfare is so bad in that group that that it's paramount to cruelty, it's irrelevant. Mm. I think it's an interesting time in dog training because I feel like now is the time that better studies could be done. And with the world, you know, it's a very small world now. We're all interconnected. Everybody knows everybody. They really could come up with some really interesting tests that could answer questions that you and I would actually like to know the answers to uh, with a large sample size. And there's people who are more than willing to do that. Like say Ivan Balabanov comes to mind immediately because he's attached to success, not at all. He's not known for his use of anything other than he's known for his success as a dog trainer on the IPO field and other places, right? Knowing Ivan, I would guarantee that he would agree to it. Well, I shouldn't put words in his mouth, but if they said, Hey, here's 40 dogs that have an issue and he, we're going to cut them in half and there's 20 either side and you are going to train your best of your ability to do it one way and then the best of your ability to do it another and we're going to compare those two methods. Like he – and there's hundreds of others, but I just use his, him as an example. 
has the skill set to do both, but also then really is just invested in success, right? And noting that success includes the attitude of the dog, right? Uh, Ivan's a bad example because Ivan is, he's massive, massively lobbying for the e-collar. Well, not necessarily right, so, e-collar, but yeah, like he is a balanced trainer. But I mean, the issue would be you'd need someone who has used those tools, right? So that, 100%. that yeah, they yeah, yeah. can, they then are not like have a bias. Like I would like to think that I would be able to do that test. I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have the skill set of Ivan, but I think that I would like to be able to do that test where I would really give it my best at each because I really want to know which one can be more effective. And if anybody but, were going to look at it and say, oh, well, here's the test, it's been done. I would want my test to be effective rather than just confirm my own bias. I'm not questioning your integrity at all. However, your business is built around the use of an e-collar. Is that correct? Like you, uh, no, no, no not necessarily. I mean, like, yeah, I, I teach Nipopo, but that doesn't require an e-collar at all. And, and like, for me, I will drop that in a heartbeat. Like I am attached to, my business okay. is built around effective dog training and I'll do whatever the technique that, now I always say, because I know that someone grabs a soundbite, effective includes experience for the dog, right? Like I, the attitude of the dog is required for me to be effective. But if yeah. there was evidence that I didn't need to, or in fact, shouldn't use any of the tools that I do, I'd drop them like they're hot, but I don't see that. And I read this, a lot of papers, but, and I read them with a critical eye, probably not as critical or effective as you, Joe Rosie, but I haven't been convinced either way of these things because of the biases that I see within them. And it's just not a strong enough argument. And before. the skill set of the trainer. Like if you, if you were to look at me in the way I train and call me the balanced trainer 10 years ago, yeah. then a highly skilled whatever trainer would outperform me because I wasn't highly skilled. But now when I then go, okay, I feel like I'm fairly highly skilled now. I should only be compared to highly skilled people. It shouldn't be like, well, Pat can train this dog that way. And this random Jono that we just, we just gave a five minutes heads up on how to use it. We're going to get Pat to do the positive dogs. And now we're going to get this grad student to do the e-collar blasting. Like, oh, well, there's your results. Like we need a person who's willing to find out the, the real results. And, and you know, to the, in defense of Ivan, uh, we won't make it about him, but like he's attached to success. Like that's, he wants to be effective and his measure of success is the same as mine. It, it, the experience and the attitude of the dog is also important. But to put a fly in the ointment, what I would say is that what, I'm ho- what I hope happens, what I hope transpires is that this very debate and the science to justify one or the other becomes redundant because what I hope is that we all can come to a point of education Mm. where we all can respect that depending on the dog, the situation, what effective means for the owner or for the person training, et cetera, et cetera, different tools are going to be more effective at reaching different goals in different ways with different dogs. And whether or not you choose to use those tools or not can become, can hopefully soon become a moot point. Mm -hmm. And it can be the case of going, because I've got definitely come to a point with it all where I can, I can see, and again, it's a controversial thing and people hate me saying it, but I don't care because I think it's the truth. I've come to a point where I think that the vast majority of tools can be used successfully and ethically um, with the dog's welfare in mind and very responsibly, very, in very sophisticated systems whereby the dog 
enters the training field happy, leaves the training field happy, and the outcomes are very effective and very clear for the dog. And I don't see any problem with trainers doing that. But at the same point, I've come to the level of confidence and experience with playing around with concepts and methods to know that I don't really want to do that. For no other reason than I just don't really want to do that. Yeah. On my training journey, I'm not yeah, but, yeah. I haven't got the, I haven't, maybe I haven't got the That's training. not the problem though. Still. That isn't the problem. The problem we've got is that if you watch somebody very skilled with those tools, then what you're watching is somebody who's learned and taken the time. Just take our own club. Mm. There are two people I'm not going to name that are a fucking horror show with those tools. Yes. And they may well be on their learning journey, but on that learning journey, I'm watching them fuck them dogs up. Mm. I'm talking about like really shitty training. And a lot of the guys at our club are phenomenally skilled. They're very good. They're very, they're highly skilled competitors. They're brilliant, but not, they're not all of them are like that. But would we all agree that these tools are not tools that should be in the public domain? Like not any, any old J blog shouldn't be able to pick them up off the shelf and buy them, right? Yeah, I agree I with that. Right. I'll support that. In theory, I support that. I think in, in practice, that falls over. Because it's difficult. There's so many degrees of difficulty. To- yeah. But like you're making the argument, like morphine is an amazing painkiller and you can only get it without a, with a prescription from your doctor and in a controlled environment used correctly, it's fantastic. But that doesn't mean I can't go out and still buy heroin on the street and become a junkie. Right. So by banning tools or making restricted access to the public, which is exactly the same as morphine, you're never actually going to be effective at doing that. And what you are going to do is the people who do get that tool illegally and without the going through the correct um, channels, i.e. in my example of I've been to the doctor, here's my prescription. I've been to the trainer. I've been trained. Here I am going to know how to use it. They absolutely are still going to get them. But what they're yeah, going to do now less. is- well, potentially, yeah, but but they're going to use them without any guidance. So, I, I, like, I'm all about. Well, one really is about more avid restriction and control. The other one is access through education. Yeah, which I'm all for. Yeah. So, in theory, I'm with it. I'm down, mm. but I just think that the practice it wouldn't work because, like, yeah, there's plenty but of we places. Could try. Yeah, and and we could for sure. But I just mm. think as well, like some, especially in say in the hunting world, right? Like, especially here with pig hunters, I'm mortified at some of the shit I read in some of the Facebook groups about how people stock proof their dogs. Right. And it's the, it's the predatory chase kind of thing. And a lot of these people like, because within that world and within their community, there is no requirement to appease anybody. Mm. Right. When people say, Hey, I'm having troubles with um, stock proofing my dog. People will just go, Oh, get the zap collar and zap him. And then they like, like, and, and for us as dog trainers, we're like, ah, don't do that. <laughs> like, there's a process to this. Like, don't just do that. And then they, like, three days later go, oh, sweet. Here I am out hunting with my dog and the dog's fine. Now he's aversive to it. So, like, while that is probably not the best, it's certainly not the best introduction and use of that tool, it is something that person was willing to do. And more than likely, they're not going to put the effort into stock proofing your dog. If we said, no, no, it's a six week process. You've got to go to this guy. He's going to teach you the tool. You've got to give up your time. You've got to pay. You'll do all these things. A lot of people go, oh, well, I'll just knock this dog on the head and I'll, I'll get one that doesn't chase a stock, right? Because like that's easier for me. So I think that's like a consideration yeah, that needs to be. But that's already happening anyway. Like, yeah. Yeah. So the, the problem is, is that not doing that doesn't change that because those people that aren't going to come to you aren't coming to you anyway. 
Yeah, that's right. But so they can still get that tool and they'll still find it. Like they'll share it around because it's, if you're using an ecologist as an aversive to create a, you know, to stock, whatever, in the community of 50 hunters, only one of us needs that e-collar. So one of us can go do that course and then we can just share it around and we get, we, we fix the issue with the dog. So, you know, a big part of my life at the moment is really trying to take a step back and understanding. So like in theory, yeah, I think people should be trained in the use of all the tools in the same way that people should be trained in the use of all dog training stuff. You know, it's to say that like, yeah, you can totally fuck a dog up with tools, but you can also fuck a dog up with a Kong wobbler. You know what I mean? Like the Kong wobbler put into the wrong house can create a dopamine addiction and to the point where a dog becomes dangerous. And I'm not making that up. I'm thinking of a real life example where the dog dog mauled a nine-year-old for trying to pick up the Kong Wobbler because the dog was so obsessed with the idea that this could pay out. So like I say, there's no, there is no like, oh, this is a safe tool. Nothing can go wrong. we got to take in the whole picture. And then when we take in the whole picture, I think sometimes when we take that, you know, that 50,000 foot view and look at it, we go, huh, like we're always going to get people through the cracks. And what's better is that those people who fall through the cracks don't feel bad about climbing out of them. Because when you take, when you say to people, you're the bad guy, you didn't get the lesson, you're over there. Then when one day they go, oh, you know, maybe I should get those lessons. They're like, no, fuck it. I'm the bad guy. I stay on this line. Instead of saying like, yeah. hey, I'm here for you. Come on over. Whenever you're ready, come on over. It's not illegal. It just is less than ideal. That's my thoughts on but it. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, I get that, but it's still for me, it's still a numbers game. Like if I give, if I get a hundred pet owners, and I give fifty of them a Kong wobbler, and I give fifty of them an e collar, I'm gonna put my money <laughs> that more dogs are gonna get fucked up on the e collar side without any fucking instruction than those without the with, with the Kong wobbler. Yeah, like you might get one or two dogs that fucking properly lose their shit, mm. but I'm gonna bet there's double, triple fucking 10 times as many on that side. Yeah. Well, it would depend on why they would use the e-collar. See, that's an interesting part of it as well. It's like a lot of people who sort of decide they're going to get the tools, people outside of our influence, right? Because conversations like this, you know, there's probably people listening that are just nodding their head going like, yeah, yeah. But they're not the people we're trying to influence. It's the people that we don't have a line of communication to, right? So imagine in your example there, you did just get 50 people and you go randomly like, here's an e-collar, do with it what you will. I'd love to see how many of them even put it on the dog because it's intuitive that this is a pain compliance tool, right? And so it would be a like there's plenty of ways we can u- use it, but that, that's not pain compliance, right? And that's kind of the issue with the e-collar is most people look at it and go, that's a pain compliance tool. That's the only way it can be used. And I would say, no, 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 there's many more layers to it than that. And that's where the training piece comes in. But most people who would look at that tool and go, right, it's just a tool of pain compliance. I will use it as pain compliance are the kind of person that is going to use pain compliance to train their dog regardless of whether they have the tool or not. So if you're, if I give you, if you're just random pet owner and I go, here's your Kong Wobbler, everyone will use it because no worries. And some dogs will have a problem, right? And it's rare, you know, in all my career, I've only seen the one dog get dangerously obsessed with the Kong Wobbler. But if you put the, go to those other 50 people or even the same 50 people and go, here's an e-collar and do what you will with it. I think, and you know, there's no evidence for this, I'm guessing, I think that most people intuitively go, right, this is a tool of pain compliance. They'll get drunk, they'll put it on themselves, they'll have a party of zapping each other and they'll go like, oh yeah, shit, that hurts. And anytime they want, anytime they want to hurt their dog, that's what they'll use to hurt their dog. But a person who is inclined to train their dog that way is going to hurt their dog with a fucking yellow crayon 
if that is the way that they think. It's not about the tool. It's about the way that they would train the dog. And so I think this is why I love conversations like this between us, like people who do use tools and people who don't use tools, is because what we really should be educating the public on is techniques rather than tools because like, Hey, here's the thing. Like if you want to create, if you, if you don't want him to do that, you could train him to do this. And if that fails, then you could, you know, like, and we go through the steps and then we go to the point, okay, well now we've got to create an aversion mm. and there's lots of ways we can create an aversion that, you know, like, and we go through all those steps and like limiting ourselves to the conversation of the tool really takes away the technique. And like I say, I just think that anybody who's inclined to go like, okay, this is equals a pain compliance tool. I'm going to use pain compliance is going to find a way to use pain compliance, whether they have an e-collar or not. And the truth is, again, I'm not suggesting this is a good thing, but the truth is that if they were to use an e-collar, they're not going to injure their dog. Now they can fuck their dog up mentally for sure. That is absolutely possible. Like I, I 100% admit that. But what you're not going to be able to do with an e-collar is actually injure the dog, right? Physically, physically, start, and burn. Yeah. Whereas anybody but you can hurt them, right? Oh, to, well, you, you can hurt them. them. You can hurt the fuck out of them for sure. You can make them think they're on fire, but they're not on fire, right? They will be okay. The second that the fucking button comes off, they will be okay physically, mentally. You can destroy them. But the issue yeah. is a person who is inclined to train that way to use that. And just the average owner, we're not talking dog trainer, the average person who's inclined to say, oh, well, I need that to stop. Pain compliance is the way to go. Absent those tools, they are way more likely to injure their dog because now they're going to have yeah. to get physical. Yeah, yeah. And that's where their mind is. And we should all be working to try and change their mind and educate them on other ways. But that's where, that's how people sort of go. Right? Nicely said. I like that. Very well said. Well, Thank you, sir. What I would say about human psychology, though, is that I do think that if we look at tests like, you know, the old Milgram one where you mm -hmm. had the man in a white coat and he, mm. you had to press a button and it administered electric shock. They've looked at that test. And, and the, the trouble is when you're administering something that is remote, so when you're pressing a button and it's doing something, there is a huge level of detachment mm -hmm. from the pain or from what you're causing. And I do think that when it comes to the e-collar, there is definitely, there is that attribute there whereby a, don't get me wrong, if someone's going to boot their dog in the head because they want to teach it a lesson as far as they're concerned and, and that's the way they want to go, then they're going to do that. And, and there's not much that, that any of us can do to affect that person's mentality at that moment. But I do think that by allowing e-collars to be given to those people, those people are more likely to use that instrument and less likely to think about it and feel about it afterwards mm -hmm. because there is that level of detachment from, from that experience that the dog's had and the experience that they've had. Are we talking about the difference between punishment or an applied aversive and retribution yeah probably it just sometimes to some extent because a lot of the time a lot of time when people are hitting dogs or kicking dogs it's frustration based isn't it they've, they've reached that yeah. point no matter where they are they've gone fuck it you're getting a hiding mm -hmm. because you deserve a hiding not because i'm looking to reduce the behavior right. yeah yeah totally um, but i think that's what i mean so in your example of where you just gave people the e-collar i think you'd find that uh, depending on the people and this, yeah, there's a lot of confining factors in that, but most people wouldn't use it because they'd just be like, well, I don't have a reason to use this. And if they were the kind of person that would use the e-collar, regardless of how they would use it, if they never got given that e-collar, they would use pain compliance in some other fashion. 
and then of course we can talk about abuse and and totally like I'm with you. Uh, that's a really good point you bring up, Joe Rosie. I hadn't really considered that for sure. Is that there's a detachment from it, and there's that impersonal nature of the e collar, and I think. You know, even some of the best dog trainers in the world that I observe are not actually capable of being impersonal. They still, whether your shoulder dips or something, there's some sort of indicator. I think it's very rare. Like if people talk about that hand of God correction, I don't think very many people pull that off at all. I think that they they give, they telegraph in one way or another. In fact, I've seen a really cool video, a uh, Dutch video of a guy giving an unfair correction via the e-collar and the dog responded in kind. Um, and so it kind of took away the, it took away the, the ability to say that there's no way they can make the connection. Like I'm quite sure the dog doesn't understand that a radio frequency signal transmits from the hand. But what he understands is when your hand does this, <laughs> my neck gets hurting yeah. and and if you don't yeah. have an arm, then you won't be able to do that, right? And that was the connection the dog made. It was it's a fantastic video. But yeah, I a think little that, bit of being for a dog. Hey. Yeah. You know, like when like when certain animals get fat, like there's a little bit of you that cheers for the dog. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh. <laughs> so I think that, you know, it's a really interesting conversation. It's got so many layers to it. And I don't have the right answers to it, other than that I, I am really scared of to speak to that legal standpoint on, you know, that. It should be training should be a gateway you have to go through before any of these tools are available to you. Mm. There's many reasons why I'm opposed to that, but but that's kind of one of them is that I think that you're not going to be able to stop it in the same way that there's illegal guns, there's illegal drugs, there's there's well, child trafficking. There's, you know, you can make things as illegal as you want. People find a way to do it. But then you make once you say to someone, Hey, you're the bad guy because you do that then it's really hard for them to become the good guy, even though there is a path to doing that, right? Like even though you just say, all you got to do is this course, man. It's like, no, fuck you. You already said I'm the bad guy. Now I'm the bad guy. And that's what we sometimes see with, I think that retribution point, something that you spoke about there, Nando. I think, you know, sometimes we hear people say that punishment is reinforcing to the punisher. For sure that can be the case, but we come, we sometimes leave out that it's negative reinforcement to the punisher. And so the longer that it's the relief of negative reinforcement, because I'm changing a behavior that's been grinding at me for ages. And so then by the time I punish it, like that is highly reinforcing to me because I stop it. And that's where people tend to go into that retribution standpoint. And that's one of the reasons why I like to think and talk sort of holistically about things, because I think... When you say to people, if you punish your dog, which is not saying you guys or anyone we associate with, but when you say to people, when you punish your dog, you're the bad guy, having a line in the sand of saying like, you've now hit your dog, so you're the bad guy, it doesn't matter whether I'm the bad guy who hit his dog once or the bad guy who beat his dog to death. The bad guy is the bad guy. So like you see that sometimes with people who cross the line and then can't stop themselves because they're like, fuck it. I've done it. I may as well go all the way. Right. And that's well, that more, that's that retribution yeah. point. Right. So it's like, and that's a buildup. And so for me, like, I think that the way to avoid that is earlier intervention or you say like, Hey, if this is a behavior that's going to drive you crazy, stop it early. Right. Mm -hmm. And we all agree on that. Just, we might talk about different, well, we probably wouldn't have different methods. We probably would agree on the method, but we say to people like, Hey, if that's going to drive you crazy, get in early again. Yeah, done it yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Find a way to not let that pressure build up. And there's lots of ways to do that. But I think, yeah, it's a fucking complex topic, man. And it's, I think conversations like this are so important rather than that rhetoric of it should be this or it should be that. And also we deal in, you know, one of the things that you guys are in Spain, despite both of you being from the UK, I've traveled, I've been to every shithole on the planet, you know what I mean? And so one of the issues is like when we talk about 
like these are the laws that's going to come in. Well, where are those laws going to come in, yeah. right? Because we're not going to affect the whole planet. We have the ability as educators and trainers to reach the whole planet via the internet or most of the planet, right? You know, it's some of those things like you take for granted, like no one's listening to this in China, like, and, and your Facebook posts aren't getting seen in China, right? So you take for granted that you, we don't necessarily have a worldwide reach, but we have a big chunk of the world. And we, people can consume our content as the four of us being sort of, you know, content creators in the dog training space and people who have online courses that, you know, most of the world has access to. We can create content that guides people in the right direction in places where the idea of whether you put an e-collar or use a prong collar or use a clicker or whatever on a dog is so far out of the day-to-day conversation. Like when you're allowed to keep people as slaves and do what you want to those people, the uh, and yeah. that's legit in some countries. The yeah, idea yeah. of whether you're using what tool you're using on your dog is not even entering the public space. And by having really good content out there on how to do that, we can then influence those people who don't have no one gives a shit as to their laws, and they're in places where they can set their dog on fire and their neighbors will give them a thumbs up over it. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it, we, but we have the capacity to influence those people. And if they want good information, we, it's here, it's ready, it's ready to go. And so that's where, how I feel. It's more about education. Here's all the information. If you want it, it's available where like everybody with open arms, come and I'll teach it to you. And if you don't want it, that's fine too. I'm ready for when you change your mind. Right. That's my take on it. I've spoken too much. This is the time where I didn't really know you well at all. I'd seen some of the posts that you and Nando had done and it just so happened that we were collaborating in the same rooms on Clubhouse. The one time where I really thought that you brought it home was when there was a discussion between a positive trainer and a couple of balanced trainers. You just appeared in the room. You were sort of sitting in the background and then somebody said, oh, Joe Rosie's in the room. I'm a real fan. And they sort of brought you to stage to reinforce their argument And when you got up on the stage, (laughs) you said, actually, I'm not going to support that science because there's so many holes in the sciences that we're fighting against each other with that I think we need to have a better narrative on what we're talking about right now and start looking at better evidence in science and so forth. And I thought, fucking hallelujah. Thank you, baby Jesus, for bringing someone into the realm that is actually going to set the record straight and not volley for either team, but say, you know, we need to be more united. We need to have better evidence. We need to think about things before we open our mouths and stop fighting over the old redundant infactual science that has a lot of bias and a lot of loopholes in it. So I really appreciated that because when we start talking about narratives, that's where we really need to go. And that's where we're starting to see this migration happening, which is I actually can't believe what's happening. Like there is a, to use the word paradigm shift, there is one happening now. Like there is a better bonding between people who would not normally have spoken to each other and would have avoided each other like the plague. And that's what we need to do. It needs not to be, you just gave a very eloquent talk about the use of tools. There needs to not be such an avid fight and an avid stop in discussions about the use of tools. People can say, I don't understand them. I don't want to use them. I don't really want to understand them. But I would prefer that they would say, I would like to understand them. I'm not going to use them. I've made an ethical choice not to do that, but I would like to understand them more. And I would like to see better evidence and more research and more investment done on it where there isn't just a 
biased takeaway where somebody has spent all this time and energy and then concluded it by saying, in my opinion, because when I start reading papers like that, that redacts everything that's in the paper because it basically is somebody is bringing their emotion home. And Norm, nine times out of ten, someone who hasn't laid a hand on a dog in ten years as well. Exactly. There could, there could be to... more cohesion between trainers and scientists. Like, yes. Because yes. if we asked dog trainers to do science, it would be a fucking shit show. <laughs> and if we asked scientists that, that haven't handled dogs, then it, it, we get what we get. So we, we need to kind of pull those two together. When we went to the, the US, was it last year or the year before? Yeah. No, it was about three years ago now. Was it? Definitely yeah. wasn't uh, last year. They're closed. <laughs> <laughs> When we went to the, to the States, um, Berkeley University invited us over to do like a round table for a study they had done in olfaction. I thought that was a really cool way of doing it, that they, they, and they'd bought the dog trainers in early as well. They'd brought in a load of search and rescue people. They were, I can't remember what they were studying, something to do with airflow and Yeah, it was airflow in, in uh, tracking. Yeah, that's right. And, and they'd brought in a whole bunch of dog trainers at the beginning and during the middle when they were developing the methods. And then they presented the results to us to see whether or not there was anything that us and the rest of the round table could kind of go well hold on no the dog's doing that because of this or because of this handler thing stuff and I thought that's a super cool way of doing it it's a shame more mm. universities don't do that where they bring in a team to consult on it from a, a handling and, and, and a, a practical perspective yeah do yeah you more do you remember there was a couple of well there were multiple places that ended up doing it but when they were looking to train COVID detection dogs and so we had Pat Nolan on and was at Penn State, had yep. approached him and were like, hey, can you train COVID detection dog? And he said, I'll find out, right? Give me the samples. I'll see what I can do it. And I was like, wow, that's the perfect fusion. Like a real university needs a detection task and they've gone to the guy who essentially invented modern detection and have gone, hey, is this going to be possible? I was like, we're going to the future, guys. Like we're actually doing <laughs> it. Like, like high fives for everybody. And Pat was like, yeah, I will see if I can do that. And he spoke to us about like, this is the things I'm going to try. And then some other university, I can't remember where it was, but they're like, yeah, we're going to train a COVID detection dog. We're going to see if it can be done. And there's this video of a guy in the white coat, like legit skull dragging a dog over to a tin and then like throwing a ball on the ground. Oh, we saw it. We saw it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everyone saw that. It went everywhere. And I was like, oh, yeah. like in spite of everyone's best efforts. That got the headline. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's what they're yeah. like. Look, they're training a COVID detection dog. And every anyone that's ever trained a dog in anything looked at that and went like, oh, this guy doesn't know anything about dog training. And the, <laughs> and the poor fucker probably didn't. He probably was like, hey, Jono, thanks for cleaning the toilets earlier, but now we need you to go and fucking clean this dog. <laughs> right. Cameron Ford's actually oh, been invited by one of the universities over the Harvard, was it, or one of the? Don't know. One of the. Uh, he the, works with Duke, I think, a fair bit. Duke mm, University. Yeah, Cameron Ford was reached out to Pat and I a while ago and said that he was really excited that he was collaborating with one of the universities over there to research into scent detection more eloquently. So I love Cameron's stuff. He's producing some really good. Yeah, material. I love Cameron's yeah. stuff as well. And, yeah. Brilliant. And Nate Paul as well, and he does a lot of research, doesn't mm, he? And he's. Yeah. Someone he, he can actually touch it. Yeah, him and, him and Cameron, they talk a lot, don't they? So that's, yeah. that's a nice... But there's also another, another subject matter that comes up when you start thinking about the research because the reason that you do the research is because you're, you need tenure at a university, which means you're teaching, right? So your, your main day job is teaching. You then also get to do your research and get your research grants. And that always terrifies me a little bit because it does, it causes a massive problem, certainly in the UK. I don't know what it's like in unis in, in, in Australia, but the people who come out with animal behavior or 
you know, they, they come out to be a dog trainer and they've done a degree and been taught by someone who I don't think has probably touched a dog in 20 years mm. and who doesn't understand dog training. And they come out with a degree in philosophy and science, really. Yeah. Um, but they're put in a position that then they're expected to go and gain experience and they're sought after because everyone said, well, you know, oh, they've got a degree. That means they must know what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I find that terrifying because, again, that's another way, that's another place where universities need practical hands-on people to be teaching a, a workforce that is meant to be a practical workforce. Mm. Yeah. Otherwise, at the moment, those same researchers that are writing these research papers are teaching the students how to dog train. Yeah. Which is... And that's why I think that the people who are at the cutting edge of dog training capability are dog trainers who read the papers and then go, hey, I have my own laboratory. It's these dogs right here that I have. I can go test that hypothesis right now. And I can test that without an ethical standards committee over my shoulder the whole time. Like other than my own conscience, I, you know, and I want to treat my dogs well, I can test things that I don't have to appease a, a sponsor. I don't have to, you know, all the different things that a real university, all the hoops they have to jump through and then have their own bias. It's real dog trainers like you and I that are just like, hey, this is how I want to do it. And how far can I push this information that you've provided me? Can I test it? Now this is where it falls over. Okay, I'll put that in my pocket. And I know that it works to 80% of what you guys said that it does until I hit this barrier and then I've got to change direction. And then that is tested on the sport field or in the client's home or wherever, right? Like that's where it's really like, Hey, how good are you? Well, here's my references from clients or here's my trophy. Mm. You know, like there's real evidence of it. Joe, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm sure you and I've had conversations with this and I have with a myriad of other people as well, where they've said when they've left university, they are effectively working through a line of bias at the university conditions them to have a viewpoint yeah. based on where the lecturers and the university wish to take it. And it's not until you come into the wide world and think, hang on a minute, that's not right. Like I've been looking at a point of view, which is very one way. And there's all this other evidence that stacks the other way as well. And there is also a middle ground on this that was never considered or never shown to me or never revealed until now. What's your thoughts on that? I don't want to appear like I'm anti-academic because I'm, I'm definitely not, but I definitely don't think it's the only route or the true, the best route into dog training at mm. all. When I came out, I can't remember, maybe because it was a long time ago, maybe just because who I was back then wouldn't have necessarily been aware of it. But what I do know is a lot of our students, and I can think of a couple of examples only this week, actually, who have messaged me and said, like, thank you so much for your rhetoric on on punishment or on negative reinforcement or that kind of thing, because I've just finished or I'm right in the middle of my degree and it's a dirty word. We're not allowed to talk about it. We're not allowed to talk about those things because it's considered unethical. And so we're not allowed to even mention the idea of using those tools or using those methods. And it's really important, like a load of us are reading your stuff and going on your courses. And it's brilliant to be able to actually get a viewpoint on this stuff because we're not allowed to ask our lecturers. We're not allowed to bring it up in lectures. And I find that terrifying. Yeah, that for me is a problem because you, to have a valid opinion you need to be able to understand all different aspects of dog training not just that one one portion of dog training that you're biased towards and my bias is towards rewards-based training and i've been on a few different e-collar courses but they were they were years and years ago and they were fucking brutal quite frankly the, the first two ways that i was taught to use an e-collar was 
was incredibly harsh. So from that moment on, I was always like, fuck me, that's the enemy. Yeah. Right? Imprinted, um, and it's taken me a long, long time to to actually realise that there's humans on the other end of that. And those first two courses, which were both taught exactly the same way, is not the only way that that, that you can use an e collar. So that's important for me. The best dog trainers in the world are those that are practically skilled, but also understand the science, mm-hmm. like. Michael Ellis is like, I don't fangirl over many trainers, but Michael Ellis, I'm like, whoa. Him, uh, Scandinavian Working Dog Institute, they're Mm. phenomenal. They really know their shit and they train dogs. Now you're into my fangirl territory. Every time I see Tobias, yeah, you're into my fangirl territory. Every time I see Tobias come up on the screen, I go like, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) he's so swedish and exotic like i'm watching him train dogs i'm like he's so he's so capable with the dog and look at his hair swoosh oh it's so nice (laughs) do you get um lubricant and tissues well glenn you've ruined it you've ruined it the thing is is the other the other question that i ask myself now so so going back to your original question, when I, when I did come out of university, certainly for a little while, I was very comfortable in that zone doing behaviour work and being very, very politically correct about everything and doing everything and believing in, in what I was doing in the way I was doing it. And, and I'd definitely say that I, when I got my pit bull, that did change everything for me because I did suddenly have a dog that didn't abide by the rules that I'd been taught. And the things that I wanted to train him just didn't work and he had all these motivations that I couldn't understand that didn't fit into my boxes I was like this so needs to be fear for me to treat it because this is what I've been taught to do and this dog isn't scared of anything anything (laughs) and he wants to fuck everyone he sees up yeah and he bites my arm and he he does all this stuff that he shouldn't be doing and and I felt completely outdogged um for about three years and it took me on a completely different journey and I learned more in that three years than I would have learned in the whole of my academic qualification in my academic time and then I was I was a significantly better practitioner out of that because of how much he taught me really um, and how and that the journey that he took me on but in terms of I think that the best practitioners like you say are the people who who know the science and train dogs and the vast majority of those practitioners and I, I I really I strive my biggest goal in my career is to buck this trend but what I would say is that 100% of the practitioners that I respect, really respect, were skilled first, knowledgeable afterwards. They, yeah. they came at it mm. from experience and talent. And then they learned why the things that were working worked. Yeah. And therefore, they were then able to standardize them and much better problem solve um, because they were able to, oh, OK, so that's how that dopamine peak works. And it's actually about the animal getting more and not the reward and all that kind of jazz. And then they were like, oh, so that's why that works when I do that. And actually, it's going to be better if I do it like this yeah. and stuff like that. They, they, they Every single one of them came at it that way not the other way and and i'm doing my damnedest to buck that trend and i can understand why bucking that trend is hard but i do think they need both and i do think that it's probably easier to be exceptional getting the skills first and then understanding why it works rather than trying to make what you've learned work well you said it best the other day which i really enjoyed that comment was you should be curious your curiosity should be rewarded as well 
And that's what I don't appreciate because I'm certainly not anti-academia in any way, shape or form. I believe in the institution of academia. I think people should learn the science, but what I'd like them to learn is the entire science, not just partial science. And that's my argument in this whole realm is don't go out there and learn something that's convenient and comfortable and makes you feel warm and fuzzy, like learn all of it understand all of it, then you really have got a good basis to argument or come back with a discussion point on because, again, your curiosity is being rewarded. So I really love that. Well, then you can choose, can't you? Then you mm. can choose. Yeah. You, you understand all of it and right. then you choose what you do. And, and I hope that we're kind of near there in that we understand a lot of the tools, we understand how they work, we understand the goodness about them and the badness about them and without any judgment. And I choose not to use that with my current dogs and my current situation for a, a whole bunch of reasons, partly laziness because I'm good at doing it this way and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's I'm, I'm totally okay with that, but I'm also totally okay with anyone who chooses to do it any other way as long as they're not hurting and scared of dog. Yeah, right on. I love that. And I think it's so important and it allows us to continue to talk. Like, you know, we've just been talking for nearly two hours. I'm sure you guys have got to go to bed in the middle uh-huh. of the night in Spain, but I've used this example a few times in conversations with people was after Nando, when you put that post up, the next day you did a live to talk about some stuff and you just were training your dog in parts of it. And I watched the video and there was heaps of really cool stuff we could talk about in the dog training part of it that just wouldn't be received. Like it occurred to me, like I was watching you, you're playing tug with the dog and the way you're using two tugs and like to train it out. And like, there's a six hour conversation that I'm sure me and you could have on the pros and cons of doing, teaching it out that way. Right. But that's not the conversation people would expect me and you to have. The conversation that people want us to have is this one that we've had and now it's out of the way, but going forward, we needn't ever discuss this because I acknowledge that you guys can absolutely fucking train dogs and you do so without the need of tools. And you acknowledge that I can train dogs and that the tools that I do use is not in the, like, I'm not torturing my dog. So we've got that out of the way. And now we can go like, Hey, you know, pros and cons of two tug versus out through non-reinforcement. Like there's six hours of fucking talking about that and why I might train one dog one way versus training it another one. And depends on the sport and the application and you know, blah, 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 blah. There's so many different really, interesting cool things that as dog trainers we can discuss and we needn't ever even get to the like oh but your dog's wearing an e-collar so your your opinion is void right like we just don't (laughs) need to we don't need to get to that Mm. i hate to bring that clubhouse but i do feel like sorry but i do feel like in many of the rooms in clubhouse we're starting to get to that point yeah like like there's definitely certain kind of regular characters and regular rooms that you get on now where that's not a conversation anymore instead we're talking about what motivates your dog and how you're choosing to use this and what what clubs you go to and when and all that kind of stuff. And it, the conversation is starting to veer away from that, yep. which is just beautiful. I like yeah. the concept that you and Casey put together, which is the no labels room. <laughs> uh, no labels room. Mm. Yeah. 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 That was a good initiative. Well, and I think it's our <laughs> role as people who, you know, are, speaking publicly and have evidence of being able to actually train dogs that we just continue to do so and, you know, keep stitching things together in the middle and leave people at the margins to themselves, right? Like, good luck. You do you out there and we'll be in here actually achieving stuff. Yep. Actually training dogs. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, I'm going to wrap it up. Give yourselves the big plug. How do people get in contact with you? I know you've got online courses. You do everything. So hit us with it all. Uh, so the website to find us both on is uh, www.canine.science.online. We have courses for dog trainers who do scent work. We've got puppy courses, you know, the, the whole shebang. And 
we try and keep it as unbiased and as impartial as possible throughout the courses as well. So that's kind of what we do. But my Facebook page is Incredimal. And mine is Joe Rosie, Archie Superpit and Co. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was just started out, it was just Archie Superpit. And then I thought I better add and Co because I've got the other dogs. And, <laughs> and then I, I thought I better put my name in it as well. And now it's become like... <laughs> on Instagram, I'm Joe Rosie H. Yeah, and mine's Incredimal again. And I try and stay off Clubhouse. <laughs> Good on idea. Clubhouse on Canine Science at Canine Science. <laughs> awesome. Hey, thanks very much for your time. It's been a fun conversation, and yeah. like I say, we should do this again and leave everything we've spoken about on the table. And you know, it doesn't need to be spoken again. We can actually talk dog training, what mm. interests us, and that kind of stuff. But thanks. it's been fun. Hopefully, people appreciate it. Got a thing to add, Glenn, before I wrap up? Just want to thank you both, and it's been a great journey getting to know you both a lot better through. Clubhouse, because <laughs> we have had. Some- I need a bell. You know, know how you used to want to hit me with a Nipopo bell every yeah, time that's I right. said it. Yeah, it was I, like I Nipopo a, bingo in the I early need a days. Clubhouse bell. Yeah, but it was. It was great that we sort of got to connect through that, and we got to have a verbal conversation with each other, and got to feel each other out, and realize we're all sharing a background on and a love of dogs, and we have a love and a respect of the science behind it as well. And that I appreciate you guys, and and getting to hear you talk and bring some substantial dialogue has been wonderful. So thank you very much. Yeah, we love the podcast too. Yeah, like, yeah. Cut the good work. It's by far our favourite podcast. It is our favourite podcast. Sorry, sorry, I missed that bit. Could you just say that again? <laughs> <laughs> you had your shot. <laughs> All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from and then go to one you don't download us from and do it there too. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you an extra episode in there as well as other stuff. You could pay as much as you want. Actually, did, Some people do. Yeah, actually did have someone offer to buy me a Yeti dog bed the other day, but I, I declined, so... It's a joke, guys. But the private jet, I will accept if someone wants to buy that for me. Yep. Another way to support the show is Teespring. Get yourself some cool merch. It's all in there. The cool story, show me your dog shirts are available now. I've yep. seen people buying them. Yes. Have we seen anyone actually got it delivered yet? Yes. I yes. Yet? I posted it the other day that somebody had it delivered. I think right. it was on Instagram. Concept to reality, folks. We mm. did it. Yep. So uh, support it. That's right. And if you want to talk about the show, you want some dog training advice, any of that kind of stuff, we should uh, jump into the Canine Paradigm discussion group Mm -hmm. on Facebook. Something I'm going to float here on air is that maybe if you guys are available, and I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud, is that a few days after this episode comes out, we maybe could do a clubhouse room where people could ask questions of what we discussed (laughs) today. And because, you know, uh, one thing I will acknowledge I do like about clubhouse is having other people give their say. And, you know, sometimes they have some really interesting things that we, uh, the four of us caught in our little room here, didn't consider. And, and they could ask people, us about the podcast. Yeah, they can. Mm. Yeah. Like discuss this, ask questions. They don't this. have to be like that meme where they're sitting next to a poster drinking a soda and eating a burger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you Android users, if we do get around to this, I think what we'll do is we'll month, record month it. Yeah, you're a month away, but mm. we might record it because I figured out how you to do that through Clubhouse and then maybe we could put it on our YouTube channel or something like that Sounds just good. as an audio file so that people mm. can catch up for people who don't have the time or the Clubhouse access. Anyway, that's just a thought out loud. Are you going to put a little cassette player next to the Yeah. It'll, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so 
in all honesty, the boards that we use, the Rode uh, Procaster, which Glenn and I both use, you can link your phone to it. So I tested it out the other day and you can actually be on Clubhouse through the Procaster and then that can record it. Yep. Oh, so anyway, that's awesome. that's a possibility for the future. You just apparently within Clubhouse rules, you just got to put in the club title that, that it's, it's been recording. recording. Mm. Um, so no one says anything that they don't want recorded. Yep. Anyway, that's it. All right. If you want to get in contact with us, shoot us an email. We are info at the Canon Paradigm. Thank you. Goodbye.